Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We're going deep into Russian territory today. First off, we're going to look at some mythological creatures from the Tatar Empire, a civilization that was destroyed by the Soviet Union, yet some of their myths still last. And then we join an unfortunate group of people that the Soviet Union deemed unnecessary. Put them all on a train, send them out east. Their final destination... Cannibal Island, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. Both of our stories today pretty much take place in the same region. One is fairly lighthearted, even though a bunch of people die. And then the other one is quite grim, and even more people die. But let's go ahead and get started on this extra fun, Eurasian adventure-filled episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I know how many listeners I have in Russia. I don't know how many listeners I have in Siberia. But did you know, here's a little tidbit for you. Right now in the personal journals category of the podcast world, we're the seventh ranked podcast in Bahrain. What? How did that happen? It's awesome. We were number two for a couple days. And we got bumped down. But anyways, yeah, number seven right now in the personal journals category in Bahrain. It's awesome, man. And I think in the society and culture, we're like 20th or 30th or something like that. But anyways, that's how this podcast is categorized. There's no category for paranormal. You just kind of got to find a category to put in. I think personal stories fits. So thank you, Bahrain listeners. Thank you for making me formally the number two. And now, what did I say it was? The number seven? Yeah, the number seventh podcast in Bahrain, in that particular category, not all of them. So, but let's go ahead. We're going to say goodbye to our Bahrain listeners, not like permanently. Keep listening to the show, but actually, why am I saying goodbye to you? You guys are also getting in to the Carpenter Copter, and we are flying over to Russia. Now, we talked about the Tatar Empire during our Mud Flood episode, and if you didn't hear that episode, it's not a big deal. We went over the history of the Tatarian Empire And I'll go over it very briefly. Now, apparently there was this massive empire that ruled huge swaths of Russia. And then when the Soviet Union took over, they erased them from the history books. And you can still see mentions of them. And this isn't really even a conspiracy. Like there's actual like documented proof of people go, people who know the region are like, oh yeah, totally. The Tatars, they're like my neighbor. But they got a ton of press for hundreds of years and the Soviet Union took over and because it was mostly like a Muslim empire they basically just wiped them out of the history books and and what's weird is everyone else just went along with it but today we're going to look at some Tatarian cryptids Tatarian creatures of ill repute actually I think that means they're a whore but Tatarian creatures of bad stuff you don't want to run into in a dark alley or a lit or well-lit alley or anywhere at all the Tatarian Empire had been this massive military group and government. They must have this amazing culture with these amazing legends, right? Let's take a look at some of them here. 
First off, and, and some of these you'll recognize, well, maybe you won't, because I didn't, but some of them are still talked about in Russia today. So a lot of them are of Tatar origin, but they're still around in Russian folklore today. Because they had a lot of bleed through. They had a lot of cultural contamination between those two groups, obviously. They live next to each other. We're going to look at first the Sorali. We're going to go into the forests of Siberia. But we don't want to because we know what's out there. It's a forest-dwelling shapeshifter. Ooh, it's a good start. Anything that lives in the woods is creepy by definition because there's a lot of places to hide. And the fact that it can change its form, absolutely terrifying. It can be anything, anywhere. Shapeshifter in the desert, not a big deal. You know, you just see a cactus and then anything else, you go, oh, that's a Sorali. And then you just walk the other way. But a forest, it can be anywhere. Long fingers. Horn. Just one horn, because, you know, the economy's not doing so well over there. They can't afford to. One horn on the head. Sling. Big hairy body. Mmm. Bigfoot with some natural weapons. You can ram you with the horn. Well, I guess it doesn't say there's... It just says long fingers. It doesn't say there's claws on it. So anyways, only one good natural weapon. The horn on the head. It also... It's a shapeshifter. And one of its best disguises is... It can turn into a peasant with glowing red eyes. Now, when I got to that point in the description, I thought, that's not a that's not a good disguise at all. Like, that's a good disguise if they're always in front of you, facing the opposite direction. You're like, hey, what's a Russian name? Hey, Vladimir, Vladimir. The guy's like, yeah? And he's like, hey, turn around. He's like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just going to look in this direction. No, Vladimir. Well, turn around, man. i got to talk to you. Like, what a terrible disguise. And that makes me wonder, is all of its disguises involve red eyes? Turns into a squirrel, red eyes. Oddly enough, again, I'm assuming this is some sort of translation error, but it wears its shoes backwards. First off, why does a shapeshifter have shoes? And secondly, what? So are, the, her, are their feet facing the right direction and their shoes are on backwards? So you see like their toes sticking out of the heel and then like the shoes all floppy? Or I, I'm thinking what it means is that the shoes are on the wrong foot. Which is still quite uncomfortable, but not nearly as uncomfortable as if you put your shoes on backwards. Your toes are all mangled up. What do they do, Jason? That's what you're asking right now. (laughs) As you're looking at your watch, you're like, come on, Jason, get to the point. Steals people's axes. Now, I know you thought I was going to say steals people's souls, because that would be awesome. And at this point, you should start to realize something. Tatar cryptids are, are quite bizarre. Quite, quite bizarre indeed. They steal your axes. If you don't have an axe, you have nothing to worry about these guys. Unless they lure you into the thickets. So they'll be like, facing the opposite direction, they'll be like, hey, come here. Come here. And you're like, which direction are you pointing at? I'm not your... And then he's like waving his arm over his shoulder. He's like, over here. Over here, man. I'm shy. I don't want to look at you in the eyes. You have such beautiful eyes. Come here. And you go into the bushes... And he turns around, and you see the glowing red eyes, and you're like, oh no, you start looking for your axe. And then, he tickles you to death. Quite the menacing cryptid, Tatarian Empire. These creatures steal your axes, and then trick you into going somewhere alone with them, and then tickle you? So basically, it's like everyone's creepy uncle. But with a horn, with a giant horn on his head. So I'm like, okay. Cryptids normally have weaknesses. What's this guy's weakness? What could you imagine this guy's weakness? Break the horn, throw holy water on him, kick him in the nuts. What's his weakness? Here it is. You turn your clothes inside out, and you wear your shoes on the opposite feet. 
Now, it doesn't explain if by seeing that they blow up or if they just, like, lose interest in you or you can, like, magically disappear. But that works for some bizarre reason. And that's why I think their their shoes are on the opposite feet as well. So maybe their clothes are on inside out and then they think you're also a Sorali and they're just like, ah, I'm not going to mess with you. But then I guess they would notice your eyes aren't burning red. But yeah, so if you want to get away from these guys, turn your clothes inside out, put your shoes on the other, which I'm, okay. So let's imagine this. A guy lures you into the bushes and is getting ready to tickle you. And then you, like, can you do it in front of them? Can you change your clothes real quick in front of them? I don't understand the logistics of this. And it's something I want to know about because I might run into one of these guys because we're going to continue our journey in the Tatar region. We're going to meet the Arkhura. Arkhura. Okay, here we go. Shapeshifter. They got a lot of shapeshifters over there. Shapeshifters and the wilderness go very, very well together. Perfect hunting technique. They're shapeshifters. They have horns. Heard that before. Hooves. That's different. And tails. So basically, these are more like a devilish looking creature, a western devil type creature. He can change shape. He can become a peasant with glowing red eyes. Now, normally when cryptids have the same description, I go, oh, that's interesting. How do these cryptids in different regions have the same description? This is pretty much the same region. What I don't understand is why they basically gave both of these creatures that are totally different, they're not the same, the exact stupid giveaway. This one, though, is a lot more powerful. So it's a shapeshifter. It can be anything, but a lot of times it takes the shape of a man. It can be as small as a blade of grass or as tall as the tallest tree. That's dope. That makes the Sorali look like a total punk. And if you didn't think that was cool enough, this dude, I think this is just such an amazing image. This peasant, despite his red glowing eyes, which is a dead giveaway, he has a long beard and the beard is living grass. That's, that's, I thought, I was like, okay, that's enough difference. Like, that's a cool visual. You gotta wonder if there's ladybugs rolling around in it or chiggers. And like, if you get too close to him, your skin starts itching. But I still like that image. It's a very nature-based thing. Cast no shadow. Like a true hunter. Never give your position away. Where's his left shoe on his right foot? Oh, great. Now we're getting back to the lame stuff. What does he do? He does, he'll leave your axe alone. But this creature, this totally different creature than the Sorali, tricks you to go into a cave with them, tickles you to death. This is the reason why they got wiped off the map. The Soviet Union was just <laughs> embarrassed of, these are the best legends you can come up with after a thousand years of civilization. Now yeah, we're getting rid of you. But let's look at another one, because we've already been out in the wilderness. Now it's time to come back in, because it's so cold out there. We're going to go to Vladimir's house. We're like, hey, Vlad, what's up? And he's not looking at us, and we're like, oh, damn it. And then he turns around, and we see he's fine. He's like, oh, sorry, I was just playing Switch. He puts down a Switch, and he sits down, and he's like, oh, yeah, so did you guys meet those two totally awesome monsters out there? And we're like, yeah, yeah, they're really cool, man. Way better than American monsters. And we're like, lame. But anyway, so... As we totally lie to Vladimir, he goes, I got one more monster to share with you. It's called the Baichura. And this one's a house spirit. So the Tatarians believe that these things, and modern day Russians believe in this nonsense too, but Baichura and <laughs> Vladimir's like, what are you saying? We're like, oh, nothing. Baichuras are these house spirits. Now, shapeshifters. Oh, oh, maybe these will be cool, right? You can't have all three be lame. Baichura, here's the actual description. I love this description. And this is the actual, I'm going to read this actual description of them here. It has also been said that the Baichura can take the appearance of cats or dogs. They become a DVD of that movie just sitting on the table. You're like, that's weird. I didn't know I owned that movie. 
Other stories either give them completely monstrous appearances or none at all. Who's writing that story? They're like, this thing crept through the house. And the little kids are like, what did it look like? And the guy's like, uh, nothing. It didn't look like anything. Just go to bed, kids. Just get out of here. Anyways, that's the description. It can either be a cat, a dog. It can be a monster or nothing. It can be just air. But that's not all, because we're going to continue here. The actions performed by a Baichura vaguely resemble those of poltergeists. So that makes sense with it not being visible. Poltergeist is different than a ghost, where a poltergeist is just making pots and pans fly around. So that kind of makes sense. So anyways, the actions performed by a Baichura vaguely resemble those of poltergeist and are not necessarily harmful. Next sentence in the description. It wears red dresses. A cat wearing a red dress? Nothing wearing a red dress. It kind of defeats the purpose of having a polter, invisible poltergeist knocking over in pots and pans. If in reality, what you're seeing moving through your house late at night is a floating red dress. Even, I'll, I'll give him this. The idea of like a desiccated monster with like horns and like eight eyes and a thousand tongues wearing a red dress is quite terrifying. But a basset hound in a red dress is laughable. He could be knocking over everything in my house he could be a true poltergeist tripping me as I'm getting out of the shower. I'd still be like, oh, you lovable mutt. Like, that's not scary at all. The least possible thing is any animal wearing a red dress or just a red dress, nothing wearing a red dress floating around my house. I'm not scared of. But these ones do have one special superpower, I guess. And I couldn't really understand the logic of this. The Baichura is a house spirit. And what it's been known to do is it helps stop domestic violence. A noble goal, if ever there was one. How does a nothing or a cat or a dog or a monster in a red dress stop domestic violence? Before the woman is about to get hit by her husband or boyfriend or dad, whatever. Before the woman is about to get assaulted, the Baichura yanks her hair. So basically, it's assaulting you to warn you you're about to be assaulted. That would be the equivalent of a fireman showing up at your house, setting another fire to warn you there's a fire in your house. So, there we go. Those are the cream of the crop of Tatarian cryptids. So, don't book your travel plans over there anytime soon. I would like to see the dude with the grass beard, but I'd rather just like see a photo of him or like him on Instagram. I don't actually have to go out and like get tickled by him. So, anyways, we are moving just slightly over where we're... So, we don't even need the carpenter cop, dude. We're going to jump on board the Jason Jalopy, drive 60 miles, because we are headed out to Nazino Island. So, what is Nazino Island? Nazino Island is... And I know I'm probably mispronouncing that. We're not going to be using that word much more, because it goes by a nickname now. It goes by a nickname. But back in 1933... It was known as Nazino Island, far, far east out into Siberia. Super remote area. There's a bunch of, like, uh, natives around there. They, they were further east than the Tatars. And the year is 1933. And what happens is, this guy comes up with a plan to resettle two million people across Eurasia. So, Stalin, basically, we had these huge urban centers, and they had all of this open land. And they're like, we want to have these giant farms. We want to have, basically, we're going to tell people where to go. It's communist. We tell you what you're going to do, what your job's going to be, and so on and so forth. And so they had done this plan before. 
And what they did was they picked up two million peasants who they thought were undesirables. They have to establish order very quickly in the Soviet Union. So they begin moving people around. And it's a great way to crush dissent because you just destroy networks. But what happened was they took two million peasants and they scattered them across. Not like one person each farm, but they would take like a group of a couple thousand here and a couple thousand here and a couple thousand here. And pushed them off on new empty tracts of land in Siberia. And they were able to start farms. They had to. Otherwise, they were going to die. So they had done this before and it worked. In 1933, this guy says, hey, Stalin, let's do that again. But let's push them way farther out east. So we have all that land out there. Two birds with one stone. We're going to take all of these undesirable people in our cities. We're going to push them far out east too. We're going to get these farms. And I guarantee you, Mr. Stalin, they're going to be self-sufficient within two years. We won't even have to supply them with any food. They'll be supplying us with food. So Stalin goes, okay, yeah, you know, that worked so well before. We might do it. I'll think about it. But go ahead and start laying out the plans. Go start doing the groundwork for it. But I may change my mind on that. And the dude's like, dope. So he starts setting up this program. But the first time they did it, they used peasants, people who had worked farms before. This new program, they were like, we need to empty the cities. So they began taking low-level criminals. They began taking people who were walking around without their papers on a particular night. They began taking shop owners who were getting a little too uppity for the Soviet Union, throwing them in train cars and sending them out east. So unlike the people who grew up on the land before, these were city folk. There were a few peasants in these groups, but nowhere near the amount you would need to have a self-sufficient farm. Ever. Two years, 20 years. They just did not know how to work the land. They started rounding up these people. Now, on the railroad trip from, say, like Moscow or Stalingrad or Leningrad, they would give them a food ration. And it was 300 grams of bread a day, which is, I goes without saying, which is nothing. Which is, that's not enough food. So, they're eating their little bits of bread. And of course, you have this mixture of people who are thieves and petty criminals. I don't think there are any murder. I don't think there are any, like, prisoners in there. Well, if everyone becomes a murderer by the end of the story, but... Mostly it was just like petty thieves. And then like they were, I, when I was doing this research, there was a woman who was out. There was this woman who went shopping that night. And when she was stopped by the police, she didn't have her papers on her. She got sent there. And there was a business owner who was like locking up his shop and the cops were asking questions and they didn't really like his answers. He ended up headed this way. Because people were able to kind of track down some who some of these people were later on. So it was just, you could have had the bad luck of being in this train car, being forced to only, being forced to survive off 300 grams a day. And the guy next to you is a pickpocket. So you're not even getting that. What was making matters worse, too, is that the criminals were not only stealing people's food, they were stealing anything they had on them, including important documents that they would use to smoke, like they'd roll them up into smoking papers for cigarettes. So your documents that proved that you were a member of this, like you were a member of the Communist Party, or that you owned your business, or just who you were, people were like, yo, man, let me hit that. And they're like smoking your ID. You're like, oh, no, my identity. I don't know who I am now. But you needed those papers to move around in Russia. So when stuff like that happened, it was making the whole, your situation much, much worse. They end up getting all the way out to Nazino Island on May 18th. This is how poorly this was planned out. The train cars get 
to the town near Nazino. And there was around 5,000 people the first go. So the train cars pull up. They're like, okay, time to go to the island. First off, 27 people fall out of the cars dead. So 27 people didn't even make it the whole way to the island. You ended up having 322 women, 4,556 men. They take them off the train, and they start putting them on barges to take to the island. When this is, again, this is how poorly this was all thought out. The barges reach the island. It's May 18th, 1933. They came up with this idea like in January, February. It was so poorly planned. This was the supplies that people brought to the island. Each person on the island got four kilos of flour. That's it. No tools. No farming equipment. Nothing. No other food either. Each person got four kilos of flour. That was all the food they had. They'd been riding these trains for days already. A week. More. And they're eating 300 grams of bread a day if they were lucky. Now they're getting put onto an island with four kilos of flour. Now, they weren't even like carrying it onto the island. They were promised four kilos of flour per person. But it had to be guarded by the military because when they first started taking it off the boat, people just started rushing the soldiers. And the soldiers just began shooting people. Stay away from the flour. Stay away from the flour. Now you're like, okay, the soldiers must be well prepared for this. They're Soviet Union soldiers. They've been shipped all the way from Moscow out into Siberia. They at least have guns to protect the flower. The guards didn't even really have uniforms, and a lot of them didn't even have shoes. So even the people in charge of this whole debacle planned it so poorly they couldn't even supply the troops who were supposed to protect slash be the prison guards for the people on Nazino Island. First day. People try to get in the flower. And it becomes, a, a it just doesn't work. The soldiers are shooting people. And they say, okay, this is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to take the flower back to the mainland. And then each person's going to have to pick a person to run their group. So you guys all form little groups. And then you send over a representative. We'll give them the flower for your group. And then they go back, you'll get the flower. So what happens is, kind of obvious, each group becomes its own gang and begins robbing each other. And then a lot of times the people who were in charge of getting the flower, they would come back and they'd say like, oh, sorry, they only said they were going to give us half the flower and they'd steal the rest. It was just a total debacle. It was just an absolute disaster. So now you have all of these people who are in groups starving. And you have corrupt people have been picked to lead these groups. And then the groups begin infighting among each other. And they're fighting for flour. And these people are starving so much at this point, they begin mixing the flour with river water. Just so it's slightly edible. And then eating the flour. Just dysentery. Just Everyone's just all over the place. They're drinking this contaminated water. They have no other way to eat this flour. They have no fresh water supplies. So you either starve. Or you have terrible diarrhea because you have to eat this flour. By May 21st, 300 people have already frozen to death. People begin making rafts to try to get off the island. And most of the time, because these are city folk, they don't know how to make a raft, the raft simply collapses in the frigid water and everyone on the raft dies. But sometimes the raft would be seaworthy and the soldiers would just open fire on him killing them, and then you'd have a raft full of corpses 
floating around the island. So many people died trying to get off the island that the waterway pretty much became choked with uh, dead bodies. To make the situation of you not having water much, much worse, there's now blood and feces and decaying human bodies in your water supply. Now, some people did get off the island, and the soldiers would watch them run off, and the soldiers would just say, they're dead. The area was so remote that there was nowhere to go. Even if you got off the island, even if, even if you were able to make a usable raft and you weren't shot, you just died in the wilderness. And for the most part, that is what happened. I don't, there was no recorded incidents of people escaping the island and surviving. May 21st, though, they've already taken the long trade rides with almost no food. They now had, definitely have no food with just the flour. May 21st, 1933, they begin eating each other. They begin eating each other. These gang, these groups that originally formed up so they could get their food in a quote-unquote civilized way have now banded together and begin attacking other people, killing them and eating them. On May 22nd, the day after people begin eating each other, actual food is delivered to the island. It was just a logistical thing. It wasn't like the soldiers go, oh, crikey, they're eating each other. Let's get some hamburgers over here. Just a logistical thing. It took four days for their food to actually show up. And then on when they finally have some food supplies, when they finally get a little bit of relief of this horrible thing, and you're thinking, maybe I've survived this long. I've survived the train ride. I've survived the horrible freezing cold nights and the bodies I haven't been eaten yet. And now we finally have actual food supplies. We might be able to make this work. The very next day, 1,200 more people are sent onto the island. And the whole thing starts over. Because there's not nearly enough food for those extra 1,200 people. And they're going to an island where power has already been consolidated among these gangs of people. These people who are on the island, for better or worse, now know each other and know what each group is capable of. And now you have 1,200 more city people who have never been this deep into Russian territory being put on an island with cannibals on it. This story was covered up because it was a huge failure. Now we're in June 1933. Stalin says he doesn't really know what's going on on the island, but he starts to think, you know what, I changed my mind. I really don't think this is a good idea. I don't want to do it. The island ended up having about 6,000 people on it altogether at its greatest point. May 27th, you brought those other 1,200 people in. A couple weeks later, it was canceled. 6,000 people put onto that island. 2,856 people left. Between April and June, 3,222 people died. Froze, shot, diseased, or eaten within two months on a small little island in the middle of nowhere. So in 198, this story was completely buried because it was just a huge failure of Soviet social engineering. But in 1988, when Soviet Union is trying to open themselves up more to the world, the stories of this incident start to leak out. And there's a group called Memorial, which goes around the world kind of highlighting human rights abuses, and they got wind of it. And they ended up in 1998 going out and trying to interview people to find out exactly what happened. Because the story, there were stories about a place called Cannibal Island. Where you went and you either ate or got eaten. The 2,800 people who ended up leaving the island, they were sent to other work labor camps. They weren't sent home. And they were telling these stories about what happened. The brutality that happened in just two months. You go from being someone owning a shop in Moscow 
to eating flesh off human bone. So they went out and they interviewed these native people in the area, the group memorial. And this is one of the interviews that was given. They asked this native person to tell them a story. And the native person says, well, this is his exact words. They were trying to escape. They asked us, where's the railway? We'd never seen a railway. They asked, where's Moscow, Leningrad? They were asking the wrong people. We never heard of those places. We're Ostiaks, which is the native group there. So they had no idea what was going on and what they didn't know there was a Moscow. Continue here with the quote. People were running away starving. They were given a handful of flour. They mixed it with water and drank it, and then they immediately got diarrhea. The things we saw. People were dying everywhere. They were killing each other. On the island, there was a guard named Kostya Vinkov, a young fellow. He fell in love with a girl who had been sent there and was courting her. He protected her. One day he had to be away for a while, and he told one of his comrades, Take care of her. But with all the people there, the comrade couldn't do much, really. People caught the girl, tied her to a poplar tree. Cut off her breasts, her muscles, everything they could eat. Everything. Everything. They were hungry. They had to eat. When Kostya came back, she was still alive. He tried to save her, but she had lost too much blood. That's just one story from one witness out of the over 3,200 deaths that happened on Nazino Island. What other monstrous acts took place in those two months that had no witnesses, that had no survivors? We may never know, but maybe that's a good thing. DeadRabbitRadio gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.